This podcast is once again presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Hello, guys. Thank you so much for your support of this little podcast that could. It's been difficult getting it all together during this pandemic. But Kate, Colton, and I are finding a way. For all of you, our loyal listeners, I'm Rachel DePampa, your host. I'm an investigative reporter with the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond. I also work for Investigate TV. And welcome to Episode 4 of Season 3. This week, we are turning back the clock on the week of May 11th through the 17th. The James River is the jewel of Virginia. It begins in Botetourt County, winding 340 miles before it reaches the Chesapeake Bay in Hampton Roads. It's one of the longest rivers in the country that begins and ends in the same state. For nature lovers, the James is home to the largest roosting area for bald eagles on the eastern seaboard. Before highways became a thing, the James was the economic spine of the Old Dominion. Major cities were built on its banks for that very reason, including Richmond. The Confederacy chose the River City as its capital because of its economic strength. And when the Civil War began, the Federals knew if they could take this Southern headquarters, they could bend the will of the newfound rebel government and restore the Union. Richmond was a constant target. And when attacks by land didn't work, President Lincoln and the U.S. Navy saw an opportunity to end the war using the mighty James. On May 9, 1862, Norfolk fell to Union forces. The infamous ironclad, known as the CSS Virginia, was purposely destroyed by the Confederates to prevent it from being captured by the Union. The Virginia was the last thing standing in the way of the U.S. Navy and a wide-open James River. With this opportunity, Lincoln says, go. Send it all. Everything we got. The strongest, the craziest, the weirdest. (laughs) Believe me, there's some weird on this voyage. Send them all. I want them all going up there. I want them to take Richmond right now. If the Union Navy had come all the way up the James, you could easily imagine a situation where they're standing off Richmond, you know, giving them ultimatums. You know, surrender or we're going to start shelling. You may remember that voice from season one and we are so excited to have him back. Well, hi, everybody. I'm Ranger Mike Gorman uh, with the Richmond National Battlefield Park. I'm one of the historians that works here. It's so much fun to tell a story when Mike Gorman is your guest. Back to that story. It was 1862, and things were not looking good for the Confederates. Almost everywhere, the Northern armies had met the Confederate armies. The Northern armies had won. Everywhere. The only prick of, of sunlight was 
Stonewall Jackson out in the Shenandoah Valley fighting very small battles against very small armies, but claiming Confederate victories. Everywhere else you looked, disaster. Think about what leads up to this battle. The CSS Virginia, your technological marvel that you created, Confederates, you had to blow up because you built her on the hull of an ocean-going vessel which drew about 20 feet of water, and you can't get her up the river. Whoops. So, that's got to blow up. It did blow up. There's no other way to do it. They couldn't lighten her enough to get her up the river. So everything that you had done, everything that you had seen be done, every advance that you had made has gone up in smoke. And here comes the U.S. Navy. President Lincoln and the Navy pulled out all the stops in an effort to end the war as soon as possible. With their two ironclads and their semi-submersible vessel and their double-ended, I mean, jeez, look at this. Look at the tech that's coming at you, you know. It's like a laser cannon or something like that today. Here it comes. I think the Confederates had every reason to imagine that this is probably it. The USS Monitor and the USS Galena, along with three other vessels, began the journey to Richmond. Nobody's ever seen this kind of tag before. In fact, the only people that that have just lost their ship. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 bad. It's real bad. And I think it's important to look at it that way. Is that when I say these are the only two U.S. ironclads? Let's let's go that a step further. These are the only ironclads in the world, and here they are. And those living in the Confederate capital at the time knew they would arrive on May 15th. If you look in the, in the newspaper, even that morning, there's a guy advertising, saying, I'm going to lead this rowboat attack. <laughs> you know, that I'm, I'm going to have these guys swarm over the, the monitor in the Galena and, and, and do it ourselves. That, that you know, we're protecting our capital, we're, we're protecting Richmond. So it's pretty crazy. I mean, everybody knew that they're coming up the river, uh, they're going to be here soon. And if, if you were you know, in the militia or uh, the home guards or whatever, I mean, you were called out, businesses closed, everybody was anticipating something. One obstacle the Navy had to navigate, a sharp bend in the river overlooked by a bluff on the land of a Chesterfield man named Augustus Drury. The Drury's Bluff is a fantastic site, probably the one that really got me the most interested when I was young, uh, because it's a massive fort above the James River, about 90 feet above the bluff. That's what's standing between the U.S. Navy and ultimate victory. There's a bluff, a fort, and a bunch of Southsiders. That's not an insult, they call themselves the Southside Artillery, but that's it. They are Chesterfield boys. It's called the Chesterfield Artillery, and they're in the fort. This is literally a homegrown artillery unit that built its own fort at a perfect place in the river, and on that one day, made all the difference. Three enormous cannons were mounted along the fort, meant to stop any vessel from getting any closer to Richmond. The city was just seven miles up the river, 
The union is close to pulling this off. Rana Knife said here. And because it was no secret the Navy was on the way, hasty preparations were made in the river to defend the Union doorway that would lead to Confederate defeat. The Confederates sank vessels in the river. I mean, <laughs> vessels they really couldn't afford to lose. The obstructions were everything. Otherwise, if they, if they hadn't had obstructions there, then the, then the U.S. Navy can just drive on past. They don't even have to really stomp at all. And they can just, you know, full speed ahead and take the consequences. The Confederates obstructing the river, that made that a stopping point, that you have to deal with us. Just after 7 a.m., on May 15, 1862, the Union force, led by Commander John Rogers, makes the turn in the James and realizes they can't push on because of the sunken ships in the river. And any attempt to move the debris was met with murderous gunfire from sharpshooters along the banks. So Rogers gives the order to fire on the Confederate defenses on Drury's Bluff. And people living in Richmond anxiously waited for whatever would happen next. When you woke up that morning and you heard those sounds and you could hear those sounds, imagine those guns going off. Eight and 10 inch Columbiads and guns from the ships firing back 32 pounders, 42 pounders. You're not gonna miss this. It's gonna be rattling your windows. You're gonna see the flashes. You stood up at Libby Hill and looked south, or Chimborazo Hill and looked south. You'd see it happening. So everybody was aware that this was going on. And just imagine standing on one of those hills and, and truly putting yourself in the place of wondering, what's it going to be tomorrow? And I'm not taking a pro or anti-Confederate stance. What's it going to be tomorrow? Are we going to have ships standing off in rockets, you know, demanding our surrender? Are we going to be completely safe and then be turned around? Now, conversely, Put yourself in a, in a position of a, a slave here in Richmond, or an enslaved person. What's it going to be? Because remember, this is before the Emancipation Proclamation. What's it going to be doesn't mean you're free. Could just be, we go back to the way it was before. Slavery's intact. What's it going to be? More of the same? Or completely different? That's the opportunity this battle gives us to look at. What does that mean? Isn't he just fantastic? I am so engrossed, and I'm the one helping tell this story. I literally can't wait to find out what happens next. Another one of my bad jokes, I know. Moving on. The centuries-old military tactic of having the high ground at Drury's Bluff meant the Confederates had a clear view of what they were shooting at, and one of the Union's ironclads was vulnerable. If you think about the monitor, you can picture that in your head. It looks like a, a you know, turret on a raft. For those of you who don't know, most of the monitor was barely above the water. Only the circular turret in the middle rose high above the surface, making it a difficult target. That's actually a pretty innovative design. It was the USS Galena that would soon be in trouble. The other design was more or less a traditional sailing vessel with iron plates on it like, a, like shingles on a roof. And that was the Galena. And the Galena was a big vessel, and so when she turned broadside in the channel to fire on the fort, what a target, what a target. And some of the sailors that were up there on the bluff were sailors from the CSS Virginia, which had recently been blown up. 
The Virginia terrorized Hampton Roads before meeting its match and battling to a draw against the Monitor. So the sailors knew that firing on the Monitor was almost useless. So don't bother with the Monitor, focus on the Galena, who's just conveniently turned broadside in the channel to fire at you. And they fired at her. Oh yeah. She was struck about 46 times. The commander said uh, looked like she'd had an attack of smallpox. It was a bloodbath aboard. Over 15 people were, were killed outright and aboard a vessel of that size. That's, it was a slaughterhouse. Not only was the Galena badly damaged, the Monitor's innovative design had finally met its own match. And of course, the Monitor's down there in the river, and because of her turret, she can't elevate her gun high enough to hit the 90-foot bluff, so she has to hang back down the river without doing hardly anything. I mean, the number of things that are just absurd. I mean, I could just walk down the line, but isn't that really what we're talking about? It is absurd. This is war. It's inherently absurd. But all these absurdities combining right there in Drew's Bluff is remarkable. It's worth noting this battle lasted for hours, as neither side refused to give in. But it wasn't a constant array of deadly iron searing through the morning air. Sometimes, it was just quiet. A participant in the battle, who was in the fort, he said at one point they were ordered to, to hold their fire. And they did so for about an hour. And he crawled under gun number two and took a nap. And I love that because when we think, I, I, I just told you, oh, the Galena was struck 46 times, it looked like a bloodbath aboard, and it was. But this occurred over four hours. And it was slow. There was a period of an hour where there wasn't any fire at all. There's a ship sitting in the river, and occasionally we fire at her. So <laughs> there's a guy under a gun taking a nap. I love that. In no other battle are you going to find a dude napping somewhere. It, it just doesn't happen. It can't happen. The Battle of Drury's Bluff also marked a first for the United States Marine Corps. A man named Mackey, who noticed that the Confederate sharpshooters had taken out, or at least driven off, the, the U.S. Navy gunners on a particular gun, said, you know, here's a chance for the Marines and leads his Marines up, and they start doing what they're not trained to do. <laughs> and it's a very Marine thing to do, I guess, but they came up and started manning the gun and, and returning fire. When the Medal of Honor was established and they gave it out for the first time, the, the first U.S. Marine Medal of Honor was aboard the U.S. Escalina. Wow. But the ship was badly damaged, and after hours of abuse, she finally gave way. One of her boilers was pierced, belched black smoke. That's what, that's what compelled her to turn back down range. And the shot that took the Galena out of the battle may have been fired by Confederate sailors who formally manned guns aboard the CSS Virginia. After this battle, everyone wrote into the newspaper to claim credit, and I, I'm not going to take a position. Whether it was the Navy or the Army that did the thing that made the thing happen, the thing happened, and it doesn't really matter. The effect is the effect. But whether it was the Army or the Navy that, that fired the shot, ah. Union Commander John Rogers, recognizing he was nearly out of ammo and the Galena could go no further, ordered his men to stop firing just before noon. 
the small Confederate force had just turned away the mighty U.S. Navy, and Richmond was safe. This is a tiny battle, but the results were huge. It meant that the U.S. Navy is not going to try to take Richmond. When they were turned away, they never tried it again. Drury's Bluff was like the Rock of Gibraltar. You're not going to try to pass it again. When it goes the Confederate way, people in Richmond, I mean, they must have felt delivered, and I mean religiously. And the tides of war would soon change yet again. Well, in two weeks, Seven Pines. Joseph Johnson is wounded, but who comes to command? Robert E. Lee. And that's why 1862 is so important. You had this moment where it could have gone a completely different way, and it didn't. Instead, it's Robert E. Lee in the driver's seat. Instead, you've got three more years of war. But what was the real pivotal point? What was the contingency? It was Drury's Bluff. Pausing for a moment on that contingency point, there was a lot on the line, and it was early in the Civil War. And think about what a different America this would be. This is before the Emancipation Proclamation. This is before Northern opinion had turned towards changing America rather than restoring the Union. That means the U.S. Navy might have come up, taken Richmond. Virginia comes back into the Union with the way it was before. Slavery's intact. So ironically, the Confederate victory at Drury's Bluff made it so that when the war ended, it wasn't going to be the way it had been before. And we should contemplate that. What does it mean if the war ends in May of 1862 versus April of 1865? We're talking about a different America. Not only a different America, but the possibility of hundreds of thousands of lives not lost to war. Makes you wonder. It should make you wonder. Were all those souls worth the difference? But as we all know today, the war came to an end about three years later, in April of 1865. But one of the moments in my mind that really stands out about Drury's Bluff is a moment in 1865 when President Abraham Lincoln was coming up to James to visit Richmond. And the same obstructions that the Confederates had placed that stymied the Galena, that made her stop and turn broadside, those very same obstructions stopped the naval party that was moving up the chains with Lincoln aboard. They had to stop. And at that moment, Lincoln could have said, yeah, let's turn around, go back to City Point. It's my son's birthday, but he doesn't. And they get in a rowboat and they're towed behind the Admiral's barge as they go up and eventually get into Richmond in a rowboat. Why did he want to get to Richmond? Why did the Galena want to get to Richmond? It's the same thing. It means the end of the war. And so, in a rowboat, towed behind a barge, the Union Navy got past Drew's Bluff. President Abraham Lincoln, once desperate to take Richmond, now on his way in a rowboat to make a symbolic stop in the former capital of the Rebel South. That's a crazy story. May 15, 1862. 
the Union saw an opportunity to snuff out the Confederate rebellion by capturing its capital. And the way to get there along the James River appeared to be wide open. But on this day, there wasn't going to be any smooth sailing to victory. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where collections of more than 129 million items tell the stories of Virginians to nearly 4 million people yearly. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Since the creation of the United States, the delicate balance of foreign relations have shaped this country into what it is today. From the early years of dealing with England and France to the Axis and Allied powers of World War II, friends and foes of the U.S. seem to change by the decade. But the past two generations of Americans know a single country that's been making its way through our minds in one way or another. Russia. From the Cold War to accusations of manipulating a U.S. election, Moscow and Washington have been balancing on a razor's edge for decades. Instead of open conflict, both countries have opted for a strategy that's basically an open secret. Espionage. You know, spy games. And a man who grew up right here in Virginia found himself quite literally caught in the middle of it all. It was May of 1960. On May 16th, a summit between the U.S. and Soviet Union was supposed to be held in Paris. A rare good sign. But before that could happen, the possibility of relaxed tensions between the United States and the USSR were dashed away by the secret mission of Francis Gary Powers, a mission that became anything but secret. Powers was born in Kentucky, but spent most of his childhood in Pound, Virginia. That's in Wise County. And I know, I've actually been to Pound, Virginia, in my early reporting days, covering far southwestern Virginia. Back to our story, Powers graduated from Grundy High School in 1946, went to college in Tennessee, and enlisted in the U.S. Air Force. He became a fighter pilot in 1952. And just four years later, he was recruited by the CIA as a civilian pilot for its U-2 program. U-2 planes were the latest espionage tool. Flying at an incredible 70,000 feet, they were thought to be undetectable by radar on the ground. A necessary element at the time, because unauthorized invasion of another country's airspace was considered an act of war. The planes had special cameras so the agency could keep an eye on the Soviet's nuclear program. Think of today's satellite imagery of North Korea's nuclear program. These U-2 missions were the predecessor. 
Powers became the most experienced U-2 pilot in the program in 1960 at just 30 years old. But then, as the CIA dubbed it, May Day over Moscow. Power's mission on May 1st, 1960, was supposed to be the first U-2 flight across the whole of Russia. Bad omens appeared from the start. The flight was postponed three times due to weather, and the delays resulted in his original plane being grounded for maintenance. So instead, he got into the cockpit of a U-2 spy plane with a reputation for malfunctioning. And he did something he's never done before. He accepted a silver dollar to take along on his flight. But this is the CIA, and that was no ordinary silver dollar. The coin concealed a pen coated in poison, you know in case the mission went sideways. We're totally going James Bondish here. Powers took off from Pakistan, rising in altitude until the outside temperature reached a balmy 60 degrees below zero. Not even halfway to his destination in far-flung Norway, the autopilot on his plane broke down. Powers decided to fly manually to complete his mission. Four hours after takeoff and high above the USSR, Powers heard a dull thump. The plane shook, and he saw a bright orange flash. He'd been spotted. It was a Soviet missile. Powers was in trouble. He no longer had control of the aircraft. It began a deadly spiral towards the Earth, tail first. As his body pumped him full of adrenaline, he knew he needed to get out. He also needed to pull the destruction switches to get rid of the evidence of his mission. Because of the G-forces on his body, he had moved out of position in the cockpit, meaning if he ejected, his legs would likely be cut off. His last option was to climb out at more than 30,000 feet. After removing the canopy above him, he was sucked halfway out of the plane. His oxygen hoses were the only things keeping him attached. His faceplate frosted over in the high altitude rendering him blind. In a panic, he tried to flip the destruction switches for the camera system twice, but life-saving instincts took over and he began to kick with all his might until the oxygen hoses broke, freeing him from certain death. His parachute opened and he watched as parts of his plane hurtled towards the ground. As he floated down, he considered using the pin inside the silver dollar. But he had just escaped the grips of death once, and he was clinging to the hope that he could survive. Shortly after landing safely on the ground, 
he was captured by men believed to be from the KGB, Russia's version of the CIA. Powers told them he had lost his direction and accidentally flown into Soviet airspace. His story crumbled in front of him when wreckage from his plane was brought in, including a map that clearly outlined his course. He dropped his cover story and admitted he was working for the CIA. He was flown to Moscow in what would have been a harrowing flight considering he had just survived a plane crash. For several weeks, he was interrogated every day for 11 hours as pieces of his plane were put on public display in Moscow as evidence of American espionage. In the days following the crash, it was a foreign affairs fiasco for the Dwight D. Eisenhower administration back in Washington. Once they knew Powers was alive, they tried to cover up the mission by claiming it was a routine weather flight that experienced an issue with oxygen, causing Powers to black out and drift into Soviet airspace. But the leader of the Soviets at the time, Nikita Khrushchev, revealed that they had recovered most of the plane, including the aerial camera system, and that Powers had already given himself up. Side note, I remember it from school, but I seriously had to practice Khrushchev. Let's proceed. On May 11, 1960, the president acknowledged his awareness of the program and Powers Flight in particular, saying if the countries couldn't come to an open skies agreement, something Khrushchev rejected in 1955, the spy flights were necessary to national defense. Khrushchev demanded an apology, but Eisenhower refused, and the State Department later said Eisenhower even approved each U-2 flight himself. That brings us to May 16th. Tensions were still high as the pair of world leaders were set to meet at a summit in Paris. Khrushchev wasted no time lighting into the U.S., saying Eisenhower would not be welcome in Russia during his scheduled visit that June condemning the Americans, quote, provocative actions and demanding Eisenhower ban future flights. When the U.S. president agreed to a suspension of the flights, Khrushchev had enough. The summit that held the possibility of beginning a peaceful coexistence between the two countries ended with no further meetings. And Eisenhower's planned trip to the USSR the following month was scrapped. The Cold War would continue. While all of this was happening in France, Francis Powers was still in a Russian prison. His trial began on his 31st birthday in August of 1960, where he was convicted of spying and sentenced to three years in prison and another seven years of hard labor. But on February 10th, 1962, one year, nine months, and 10 days after being captured, Powers was freed in an exchange for Soviet spy Rudolf Abel. They were traded for one another along a bridge in Berlin known as the Bridge of Spies. 
This Moment in History was made into a movie in 2015, starring Tom Hanks and directed by Steven Spielberg. Quick side note here, one of the first Americans to see the wreckage of Powers U-2 plane in Moscow was Steven Spielberg's father. He just happened to be in Moscow at the time on business. Anyway, Powers returned to the United States a very controversial figure. Many believed he should have destroyed the espionage evidence before escaping the plane, while others were convinced he should have used the poison pen. Remember, the Cold War was on the mind of most Americans during this time, and people were worried what kind of intelligence Powers gave his captors. As pressure mounted, Powers went before Congress in a public hearing. It lasted only 90 minutes, and he was cleared by the U.S. government of allegations of misconduct. Declassified documents decades later would show that Powers followed orders by having a cooperative attitude, but never gave out secret information and refused to denounce the country he called home. The only intelligence the Russians gained was the pieces of mangled metal and equipment from his plane. He continued working for the CIA shortly after his return and eventually flew U-2 test missions with Lockheed starting in 1963. But his incredible story has a tragic end. In the 1970s, he worked as a helicopter pilot and traffic reporter in Los Angeles. And on August 1st, 1977, Powers Chopper went down, killing him and his cameraman. The CIA says the helicopter had a faulty fuel gauge. May 1st, 1960. A Virginia man is captured in the Soviet Union on a spy mission. And on May 16th, the fallout from the fiasco causes an international summit to spiral. Nikita Khrushchev abandoned further attempts to cooperate with Eisenhower, instead waiting for the new commander-in-chief, John F. Kennedy. Before his death, Francis Gary Powers was asked, how high he was flying on that fateful May day. And he would answer, not high enough. The struggle for power is a fight that goes back to the beginning of mankind. As society has evolved, that struggle has taken new forms. Political power, financial power, geographic power. As views and beliefs within communities have changed, so too have the people wielding the power. It was no different here in the United States in the 1860s. Views and beliefs on slavery, states' rights, you name it, were growing further and further apart. The country split in two. The man with the power in the North, President Abraham Lincoln. The South, Confederate President Jefferson Davis. When the war ended in 1865, the rebellion's leader was not executed. Jefferson Davis's life was spared. 
But his imprisonment had just begun. That brings us to May 13, 1867, after just two years of confinement in Virginia's Fort Monroe, Jefferson Davis was released on $100,000 bail. That would be well over a million dollars today. The disgraced Davis arrived to Fort Monroe as a prisoner in May of 1865, about a week after he was captured in Georgia. He was placed in a damp casemate or cell a few days after his arrival, karma arrived in the figures of the fort's commander and a blacksmith. The man who heralded the institution of slavery was about to know the feeling of being shackled in chains. Davis violently resisted and had to be subdued. A man who witnessed the event wrote that Davis was crying as the iron was placed on his legs. The press got wind of the shackling of the Confederate leader, and just days later, the War Department ordered the shackles removed. Through it all, Davis was constantly monitored by soldiers who ensured that he ate, didn't try to escape, and didn't try to end his own life. At the time, Americans were deeply divided on what to do with Davis. The government thought it could prosecute him for somehow being involved in Lincoln's assassination, for mistreating Union prisoners during the war, or frankly, leading a rebellion against the United States. Many abolitionists and lawmakers opted for a plan to punish the Confederacy as a whole, not just its former president. Many civilians wanted Davis dead, asking the new president, Andrew Johnson, to hang him. Some wrote to the president, volunteering to construct the gallows. Johnson favored murder charges to get justice for the man whose position he inherited. But when the trial of Lincoln's conspirators didn't produce evidence to tie Davis to the assassination, Johnson decided to pursue charges of treason. In June of 1865, a federal court in D.C. said Davis was, quote, being moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil to excite rebellion, insurrection, and war against the United States. President Johnson said Davis was the head devil among the traitors and he ought to be hung. But he also acknowledged Davis should have a fair trial. It was decided that the 57-year-old alleged traitor would be tried in Richmond, the former capital of his very own government. Months would go by as officials debated how to move forward. Meanwhile, in Fort Monroe, Davis's imprisonment restrictions were being relaxed. He was transferred out of his small casemate in October 1865 to larger living quarters. In the following May of 1866, his wife, Verena Howell Davis, was allowed to live on the fort to see her husband. Another year would go by and some prominent Northerners complained that Davis was being denied his right to a speedy trial. 
saying it needed to be done so the nation could heal. That brings us up to May 13, 1867, when Davis was finally granted that $100,000 bail, much of it paid by wealthy men in the North. Davis was prepared for a trial to argue the original Constitution gave states the right to secede. He was ready to say he did not betray the United States because once Mississippi left the Union. He was no longer a U.S. citizen and therefore not treasonous. Some thought and worried he might win. The trial was set to begin in March of 1868 but it was delayed yet again due to the impeachment trial of President Johnson. That's a segment for another day. Before the actual trial got underway, the defense argued the case should be dismissed, citing the newly ratified 14th Amendment, which included a provision barring those who participated in the rebellion from holding public office. Lawyers argued Davis was being punished by that provision, and therefore the charge of treason violated the double jeopardy restriction of the Fifth Amendment. The court in Richmond was divided, and the case was certified to the U.S. Supreme Court. But before the nation's highest court could decide, and fearing the court would rule in Davis's favor, President Johnson released an amnesty proclamation on Christmas Day, pardoning all persons who participated in the rebellion, including Jefferson Davis. The government officially dropped its case in February 1869. The former president of the Confederacy was a free man, imprisoned for two years, never brought to trial for treason. May 13, 1867, the man who led a rebellion against the United States government is granted bail and released from confinement in Virginia. Jefferson Davis lived for another 22 years, dying in 1889. Seen as a martyr for the Southern cause, tens of thousands attended his funeral. The New York Times called it the grandest funeral seen in the South, but thousands more would show up four years later to see Davis's funeral train as it took his remains across his former Confederacy to their final resting place, Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond. Come to Richmond, Virginia, and you really can't escape the Civil War. It's everywhere, it definitely is. From the towering statues of Confederate generals down Monument Avenue, to partially exposed cobblestones and Chaco Slip, even the White House of the Confederacy is open for tours. That was definitely a surprise to me when I moved here about 20 years ago from New Mexico, where the Civil War is something that happened you know, over 150 years ago and then to come to Richmond where it seems like it's still being fought. Kelly Hancock is the public programs manager at the American Civil War Museum. I caught up with her at Historic Tredegar, 
and quickly discovered she adores looking back in time. I just find it fun. <laughs> More seriously, there are so many connections that we can make between the past and present. And the past really influences how we, we think and act today and some of the issues that we deal with today are rooted in the legacies of the past. And sometimes the past isn't fully known, but it echoes through history, never quite staying in the shadows. We are still uncovering the little known stories that over time help us understand that what we assume to be true really is. Not everyone subscribed to the brutality of that age. Not everyone who fought back was a man. There are white women who found gutsy ways to undercut the institution of slavery. And there are black women who were more than what society saw them as. They found ways to live beyond the expectations of so-called masters, to be a secret agent for change. This is the story of Mary Elizabeth Bowser, or should I say Mary Jane Richards? Richmonia Richards? Mary Jane Richards Denman? There's a lot more that needs to be uncovered about this very mysterious woman. The mystery begins on May 17, 1846, because that's the first record of her existence. Mary Jane Richards was baptized at St. John's Church. She was baptized as Mary Jane, and according to the records at St. John's, it's, it's Mary Jane, a colored girl belonging to Mrs. Van Loo. A little girl born into slavery in Richmond, allowed to be baptized at St. John's. It defies the logic of that time. For some reason, Mary Jane was singled out for kind of special treatment. The fact that she's baptized at St. John's is significant because this was a church for white people and elites. The African-Americans, the enslaved servants of the Van Loos attended church at First African Baptist Church, and that's, that's where most uh, African-American people, people of color, were baptized. But Mary Jane was baptized at St. John's. The Van Loos came from New York, but even though they were Northerners, John Van Loo firmly embraced slavery. But we know Mary Jane didn't live the life of a typical slave because the Van Loo household held many secrets. Mrs. Van Loo owned a very grand mansion up in Churchill. Her husband, John, when he died, knowing that his wife, Eliza, and that his daughter, Elizabeth, were abolitionists, he actually put provisions into his will to prevent them from legally freeing the enslaved people in the household. But after John died, a piece of paper wasn't going to hold back the Van Loo women. In essence, they freed the slaves anyway, just not legally, which made it tough for Mary Jane because she didn't have formal papers declaring her free. Back to her early years, not long after that baptism, Elizabeth Van Loo sent Mary Jane north to a school in Princeton, New Jersey. And then there's a ship manifest 
showing a 15-year-old Mary Jane traveling to Liberia in West Africa to join a missionary community. And she was not happy there. And she wrote to Elizabeth Van Lu and expressed her difficulties. And Elizabeth Van Lu corresponded with officers at the American Colonization Society to get Mary returned to the state. And this is research that was done by Elizabeth Varon, who wrote the biography on Elizabeth Van Lu, Southern Lady, Yankee Spy. And in these letters, Mrs. Van Lu really expresses a lot of concern and responsibility for Mary. When Mary Jane finally arrives back in Richmond, she's arrested. And it happened to be when Eliza and Elizabeth were both out of town, Mary Jane uh, was arrested for not having her papers because at this time a, a free person of color had to have papers to prove that they were free. So she didn't have free papers, so she was arrested, and this is in the summer of 1860. The Van Loos had to pay a $10 fee for letting their slave, quote, go at large. The arrest and fine even made the local paper, the Richmond Whig. Now, the correspondent from the Richmond Whig didn't completely buy this whole story because they knew that uh, this woman had also been over to Liberia, and uh, there's some comment made about Liberia being a strange place for a slave to go and come from, because that's definitely not at all typical. During the arrest, Mary Jane gives police two different names, Mary Jones and Mary Henley. It's the start of her many aliases through her lifetime. Now, the Jones is interesting because in the U.S. Census for 1860, Mary Jones is listed as a free mulatto woman in the Van Loo household. So we see that name uh, Jones pop up again, even though all the correspondence with the American Colonization Society revolved around Mary Richards. I'm sure like a lot of you, I couldn't help but wonder why the Van Loo women took such an interest in Mary Jane. We don't know who Mary Jane's parents were, so it could be that perhaps one of the white Richards was a parent of Mary Jane. And maybe that's why they took an interest in her, but that's strictly, strictly speculation. Mary Jane is described as being uh, the, the term of the day mulatto, which was a biracial person. Mary Jane gets another name on April 16, 1861. She's married. There is a marriage record of Mary to Wilson Bowser, and they're listed as colored servants in the Van Loo household. Perhaps that's where the Bowser comes in, and that's why uh, she was remembered as Mary Elizabeth Bowser. The ceremony took place at St. John's Church, just four days after Confederate troops opened fire on Fort Sumpner. In the history books, she's mainly referred to as Mary Jane Bowser, but this is really the only time we ever learn of Wilson or that she was married. After the Civil War, we have no record of uh, Wilson Bowser, so we, we don't even know what becomes of, of Wilson Bowser. But it's obvious after the Civil War, Mary Richards is not acting as though she's married to Wilson Bowser anymore. As the Civil War exploded all around them, there was yet another Van Loo secret, 
Hidden in the middle of the capital of the Confederacy, Elizabeth Van Loo was a spy for the Union, running a Richmond underground espionage ring. In 1864 is when Elizabeth Van Loo was officially recruited by General Benjamin Butler, who was a Union general. And then she would relay information to him a few times a week, keeping him abreast of what her network or the network in, in Richmond was gathering. And it's clear that Elizabeth recruited Mary Jane. Elizabeth Van Loo kept a diary during the war and in this diary, she does make one mention of a Mary. I think we can assume that it was Mary Richards, but she says that when I, when I wake up in the morning, I say to my servant, what news, Mary? And then she says, my caterer never fails me. And she goes on to say that the most reliable information comes from, uh, quote, Negroes. And we do know that a large part of the Richmond underground was made up of free and enslaved people of color and that it was easy for uh, those people to gather information because two things, either they're being completely ignored and white Confederates are assuming that they're, they're ignorant or enslaved people were considered to be extremely loyal so there were a lot of white slaveholders who felt that there was no way their slaves would ever betray them. And it's now believed Mary Jane actually spied inside the White House of the Confederacy. Now the story about Mary Bowser being placed in the Confederate White House first surfaced in 1900, right about the time that Elizabeth Van Loo died. One of the Richmond newspapers reported that Van Loo had placed a slave in the Confederate White House to spy on Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government. The wife of Jefferson Davis, Verena, would dispute this claim in 1905, about a year before she died. Verena Davis completely denied this story, uh, said it wasn't true, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't true. Certainly, even if she maybe found out later, Verena probably would not want to admit that she had been duped into hiring uh, someone that Elizabeth Van Loo had kind of put in her pathway. And Kelly says, we know that Elizabeth Van Loo was good at maintaining cover. Nobody knew until after the war that she was even a spy. And not long after the Civil War ended, Mary Jane said herself that she spied inside the Confederate White House. She said this during a speech to a Baptist church in the fall of 1865, where she used the alias Richmonia Richards. She talks about two things that she did with the Richmond Underground during the war. One of those is that she said she infiltrated the Confederate Senate and was able to listen to the debate about the conscription bill or drafting soldiers. And then the other thing that she says she did is that she went to the president's house seeking washing or seeking laundry. She was shown into a, she said, a small office, which was most likely uh, in the Confederate White House right off the entrance hall to the right is a private receiving room. So she was most likely shown into that space and was left alone there evidently by one of the clerks, she said. And while she was alone, she opened the doors of a cabinet and scrutinized the papers. And then she recalled that Jefferson Davis came in 
but the fact that she was a, uh, quote, colored woman, Jefferson Davis just allowed her to leave, so he didn't suspect her of anything. So that's the one thing that she says in this speech. Maybe she was collecting laundry on a regular basis. It could be that she had been you know, hired as a laundress to do laundry off-site. We don't know that, but I think if we go by what Mary Richards says, we can at least on one occasion put her in the Confederate White House doing a little bit of spy work. Over the years, her story and legend grew. Folks would come out of the woodwork and claim to be members of the Richmond Underground. They would give Mary Jane even more fanciful and daring spy gigs, like setting the Confederate White House on fire or having a photographic memory. But Kelly is citing recorded history, what we can actually document. And either way, a family of women secretly spoiling Confederate plans in its own capital is a pretty freaking amazing story. I think you could say that. Uh, yeah, I, I think you definitely uh, could say that. Yeah. After the war, we know Mary Jane becomes a teacher with the Freedmen's Bureau. She spent time in Florida. At a school in St. Mary's, Georgia, kind of one of the last things that Mary Richards does, she writes to the superintendent of the school in June of 1867 and tells him that she's married and that now she's Mary J.R. Gavin, that that's how she should be addressed. And then about a month or so later, she writes to say that she's going to be leaving her position because she is going to join her husband in the West Indies or in Cuba. So she seems to disappear after that, except uh, very recently there was a letter that came up for auction in Cincinnati, Ohio. And one of the people at the auction house contacted Lois Levine because she thought it might be of interest to her. Lois Levine wrote a novel called The Secrets of Mary Bowser. This letter is to my dear Miss Bet, of course Bet being a nickname for Elizabeth, and it's from M.J. Denman. So here we have another name, but Lois Levine in analyzing this letter really feels like this is Mary Richards' handwriting. And Mary Denman at this point, or M.J. Denman, in 1870 is the date of this letter, is up in New York City. She's not in the West Indies, she's not in, you know, she's not in Cuba, she's in New York City. So that opens up a whole lot of questions. Lois Levine, in going back through kind of records of the Freedmen's Bureau, found that there was a Mrs. John T. Denman who opens a school in St. Mary's about two months after Mary Richards or Mary Gavin closed the school. And she also feels that this writing is the same writing as Mary Richards. So why would Mary Richards close a school and then uh, open it up two months later with a different name? She later writes to the superintendent and says that she would like a teaching position near Atlanta because that's where her husband is and that his, his name is John Denman. Another mystery yet to be uncovered in history. As for Elizabeth Van Loo, she would be rewarded for her spy network by President Ulysses S. Grant. 
When Ulysses S. Grant became president, that was one of the first things that he did was to name her postmaster. And of course, at the time, postmaster was one of those patronage jobs. It's a job that the president could give to people who had been his supporters. Van Lu died in September of 1900 at her home in Richmond. They had this just beautiful mansion up on Church Hill. It's where Bellevue Elementary School is located today. And it's not still there because after the war, when Richmonders learned about Elizabeth Van Lu and her spying activities, when Elizabeth Van Lu died, they had the house torn down. So this the beautiful mansion went by the wayside because of the hatred toward Elizabeth Van Lu. She's buried in Shaco Hill Cemetery. As for Mary Jane Richards, her final resting place is yet to be discovered. May 17, 1846, the day a little girl born into slavery stood in a white church to be baptized. We don't know what happened to Mary Jane Richards, where her adventures took her, or even when she died. But you can be sure she had an alias and a way of skirting around the limitations of her time. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you to the Pod Squad. That's nerd speak for digital director Kate Albright and executive producer Colton Weekly. This little podcast that could, could not without these two. Seriously, thank you. And thank you to our guest this week, Kelly Hancock, the public programs manager at the American Civil War Museum, and Ranger Mike Gorman, historian with the Richmond National Battlefield Park. Next week on episode five. Not to use the you know overly cliched term, bad optics, but these are terrible optics. A tainted treaty for peace in the Virginia colony. According to some records, souvenirs are taken away by the English settlers back to Jamestown, so this might include scalps. It's a particularly grisly episode. When colonists offer Powhatan Indians a deadly drink of deceit. Plus, the legend of the Angel of the Battlefield and how her work during the Civil War blossomed into one of the most recognizable organizations that lives on today. And... Senator Aaron Burr and Dolly became very good friends, and James Madison saw her on the street and was totally besotted with her and asked Aaron Burr to introduce them. The rest, as they say, is history. The hostess with the mostess is born. America's first lady. Hello, Dolly Madison. And that is when that term was born. That's next week on Episode 5. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.